All right, the book of Amos, if you will, the book of Amos. Let's start in, uh, <clears throat> we're going to start in chapter 7, towards the end of the book. There's only nine chapters. Amos is one of these, what we call minor prophets. Uh, Amos chapter number 7. <clears throat> and um, we're going to take just a few minutes to, to kind of introduce the character of Amos. Amos is only mentioned in his own book. He's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Um, not even by reference. Nobody even references him. Only in this book is he mentioned. There is another Amos, spelled A-M-O-Z, I think it is, that is the son of, or is the father of Isaiah. So don't confuse the two, uh, just because there's a misspelling there. Sometimes you'll read similar names like that. And uh, like sometimes it talks about Elijah in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it'll say Elias. Uh, and there'll be a difference in the spelling, but speaking of the same person. This is not one of those cases. So if you see the A-M-O-Z name in Scripture, which you will, uh, it is not the same character. The only person that we know of as far as uh, the prophet Amos is only mentioned in his book. Um, and uh, so he's a, uh, and he's not a, he'll tell you up front, and this is what we're going to look at real quick. Look with me in verse number 14. <clears throat> Amos chapter 7, verse number 14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, <clears throat> I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdsman, a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And uh, so Amos does not come from a line of prophets. Uh, he was not a prophet himself or didn't consider himself to be a prophet himself. He was just a simple farmer. And uh, I wanted to start with that today because uh, that ought to encourage you and I. God, God doesn't, uh, I think sometimes we get in our minds that uh, men that stand in pulpits and preach the gospel, that, uh, that they were something special, and so God decided to use them. No, God uses ordinary people. He gives an extraordinary truth, and He does an extraordinary work through them, but He uses ordinary people. And, uh, you know, that there's a, uh, sometimes I'll joke around uh, with some people, um, some people get this mindset of there's the, the clergy, you know, the, 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 the pastors, the preachers, and God gives them some kind of uh, unique, miraculous uh, understanding of Scripture that uh, the laity cannot quite get to. That is not true. God gives the same illumination to you as He gives to me. And uh, there is there's certainly the power of the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts. God certainly has a position of a pastor, and He speaks of that in Scripture. But we are all sinners just saved by the grace of God. And God can open the Scriptures as much to your heart as He can to my heart. And uh, that there is no difference there. God uses ordinary people. If you knew how ordinary I was before I pastored, you would shake your head and say, why in the world did God choose him to pastor or to preach the gospel? Because I'll be real frank with you. I still uh, get tickled at it and think, Lord, you just must have a sense of humor. Uh, why you would do that. Uh, God can use you. And that's what I want to get across here. Here's a simple herdsman, a man who is a sycamore farmer, basically. He goes out here and he harvests sycamore fruit. And his job was to go along and punch a hole in the fruit before it was harvested to let the bugs out of it. And a very simple fella. I mean, he's out there working day in and day out. And God calls him and uses him to do a great work for him. Amos is a unique character of the prophet's. 
most of the prophets that we've studied up until this point, and I would go so far as to say probably all of them, where they were born is where they usually ministered. So if they were born in Judah, they ministered in Judah. If they were born in Israel and lived in Israel, they ministered in Israel. Amos is a little bit different. Uh, Amos was born in Judah, was raised in Judah. That's where his, his family farm was. But his ministry was to the northern kingdom of Israel. As a result of that, uh, they, they reject, of course, they rejected the message because of the hardness of their hearts. But there was also some um, kind of, kind of a, a shunning of him because he wasn't from Israel. He was from Judah. And so a lot of them, uh, several people, were uh, very defiant of him. There was even a priest, uh, Ahaziah. Uh, who ridiculed him and, and really spoke poorly of him. In fact, that's who he was answering in chapter 7, verse 14, when he said, look, you're sitting here criticizing me. I wasn't even a prophet. I'm not doing this for my own gain. He said, God called me to do this. God put this on me. And uh, he, was, he was addressing Ahaziah uh, regarding that. Ahaziah was a priest. And he was a priest at Bethel, of all places. You remember where, where Bethel started? Where did, where did Bethel get established? Anybody remember? Where was the first... Uh, first indication of that in the Old Testament. Nobody remembers that, where that happened at? Okay, remember when Jacob was fleeing Esau. He goes out into the wilderness and he makes a bed of stones. And God gives him the dream of the stairwell going from heaven to earth. And he called the place Bethel. And uh, there came a city uh, there because of that. And uh, Jacob comes back to Bethel, if you remember, at a time where his... A family had uh, gotten involved in idolatry. And he told his family, I want you to put away the idols. We're going back to Bethel. We're going to meet with God again and going to have revival. And this was really a spiritual um, hotbed, if you will, during the time of Jacob. Uh, it was a place where he could go back to and have revival with God and, and commune with Him and uh, have a relationship with Him. And um, what's interesting here is that by the time of Amos... Bethel is the capital, or is the place where the king of Israel was residing, and um, and it was, but it was also the seat out of all of the tribes of the northern kingdom. Bethel was known as the seat of idolatry. Can you imagine that? The place where it was intended to be sanctified and set apart and made holy and special. And, and Jacob even built an altar there to God and said, "I want this place to be special." Um, it ends up being a place of idolatry. You say, how in the world did it get to that point? Because somewhere along the line, little things begin to creep in. And the northern kingdom of Israel is at this place where, to be real frank with you, everything is going great. Their economy is doing well. It's booming. They're not under any tribute of any enemies. Uh, their military might is well. And day by day, they're living their lives with ease and comfort. And when Amos comes on the scene, as, as a few others did, Hosea did this as well, uh, Isaiah did this, um, they come in and they start saying, you've sinned and God's bringing judgment, and they mock them and they laugh at them. They say, look around you. Things are going great. We don't see any of God's judgment in this. If, it, if, if God was upset at us, He would not let us be living at this level. And yet, that wasn't the case, was it? God was being long-suffering to them. There's a lesson to be learned in that in our own personal lives. Just because God hasn't brought chastening yet does not necessarily mean that we're living our life right. 
There are times that He is long-suffering with us and giving us a chance to come back to Him. And so I would say this, that in the times that we are most prosperous in the Christian life, we're on the mountaintops, those ought to be the times that we do probably most, they ought to most closely examine our own hearts. We ought to sit down with Scripture and measure our life according to Scripture, because those are the times that it could be God is just being long-suffering towards us, and that the chastening will be coming. Such was the case with Amos. Uh, the nation of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel does not listen to him. They mock him. They say, we're not going to take heed. We're not going to repent because everything's going great. Why should we do that? Uh, we like the way we're living, and apparently everything's going well. The theme of the book, if you take an overall theme, is found in chapter 4, verse number 12. Let's take a look at that very quickly. <clears throat> chapter 4, verse number 12. <clears throat> God is giving the message to Amos to tell Israel. He says, Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. In other words, uh, the judgment is coming. And uh, so the key phrase here, if you will, in, in this particular book, I think is found right there in that verse. Prepare to meet thy God. If you're going to continue to refuse my uh, preachers, my, my prophets that are te- trying to teach you and draw you back to him, back to me, he says, then, then I'm going to bring judgment. So go ahead and prepare yourself. You're getting ready to meet your God here in a way that you're really not going to want to meet Him. And uh, there is the judgment coming uh, to them. The book is divided mainly into four uh, sections. Uh, you can find them fairly easily in Scriptures. From chapter 1 and verse number 1 to chapter 2 and verse number 16, there are eight different prophecies given. Seven of these prophecies are for the outlying uh, regional nations around them or countries around them that surround the northern kingdom. Each prophecy gets closer and closer. And finally, to the eighth prophecy, the eighth prophecy is for the nation of Israel itself. And so it's spiraling in. And uh, during this, this eight, these eight prophecies, um, the phrase for every one of them starts with, a phrase that's used for every one of them is this, for three transgressions of, and then he goes on to state what the transgressions are. But the phrase, for three transgressions of, and he states what the transgressions are, and then he says, and for four. And when he makes that statement, and for four, what he's saying is, I was willing to be long-suffering for three, but now that you've reached the fourth one, judgment is coming. In other words, it was kind of like the last straw phrase that God was using. He uses that in all eight of the prophecies found in these first two chapters. Uh, you'll find that thing mentioned eight different times. Seven of the different times, uh, you'll find that God uses the phrase, I will send fire. And uh, that uh, could be either literal fire that is coming down, or it could also mean, and sometimes it is meant in, judgment, uh, in prophecy as God's judgment. Uh, but he says, I will send fire to seven of those prophecies. Uh, this is what he said uh, is going to be the judgment. The second uh, division is found in chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 6 and verse number 14. These are three sermons that are preached, <clears throat> and uh, they're, all, they're all three preached to the northern kingdom of Israel. The first one is uh, God exposing the crimes, I'm sorry, uh, God preaching about bringing judgment on the iniquities of Israel, bringing His judgment on the iniquities of Israel. The second one, the second message that he preaches in this section, exposes the crimes uh, that Israel has committed. 
Uh, he explains in that, in that message, he explains to them how in the past he has chastened the nation of Israel. And the key phrase to get out of this, five different times in that second message, as God is saying, here's what the sins of Israel were, the crimes of Israel has been in the past, here was what my chastening was. Five times he gives an illustration of that. And five times he says, yet have ye not returned to me. So, kind of get the idea of where Israel is at this point. They're involved in idolatry wholeheartedly at this point, full-fledged. Uh, things are prosperous, things are doing good, so they don't see any need to change. And when the prophet of God comes along and says, listen, uh, you guys need to repent or God's going to bring judgment, they kind of laugh at him. So in the second message, God says, look, I did this with Israel before, five different times. He gives illustrations of it. And all five times he says, yet have you not returned to me. He says, for that reason, I'm going to judge you. The third message they preaches on, he lists the sins of Israel, and he calls them to repentance. But the Bible says in that message that the nation of Israel at this point, at the time of Amos, that they hated integrity, they hated justice, and they hated compassion. Does that sound familiar? Think about that for a moment. Look at our country. Look at countries around the world today and the situation our world is in. They hate integrity, they hate justice, and they hate compassion. And the same thing that is going on today. And these are the things that God points out to them. The third section of the book, we have the eight prophecies in the first section, the three sermons in the second section. The third section of the book is chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 9 and verse number 10. And these deal with five visions that uh, Amos had, that God gave to Amos. Uh, all of them are on the judgment that God is going to bring to the nation of Israel. The first two judgments, the first two visions that God gives to Amos and says, I'm going to bring judgment on Israel in this area, do not happen. Now, before you sit here and say that Amos must have been a false prophet or God was not truthful in what he said, Understand that the reason that he did not have these first two come to pass is because Amos went to God and interceded for Israel uh, before God and was able to convince God to be a little more long-suffering and to, to bid his time a little longer and give him time to preach the message to Israel and see if they would not repent. And so God, in his long us, and he's done this before in history throughout the Old Testament, he's come and said, this is what the judgment's going to be, and someone would plead with him and intercede for him on their behalf. And God would say, okay, I'll spare him a little longer and see what happens. Um, which is interesting, isn't it? Because God already foreknew what was going to happen. So whose benefit was he doing this for? The only thing I can think, and this is my thought on it, is that he was doing it, first of all, for Amos's benefit, to help Amos realize that, yes, uh, God is going to listen to you, and God is going to give that chance. But I think, secondly, it's to give Israel no reason to say that God has been unjust in His judgment of them. There's going to come a time, we've been studying on Wednesday night, there's going to come a time where God's mercy is not going to be extended. Unless the world says, well, God is a merciful God, and if He doesn't extend mercy, then, then He can't be all that He says He is. Understand, He's given way more than enough time and way more than enough mercy. 
And His judgment comes, and it is a just judgment. It is fair, and it is right. And I think that for that reason, He also listens to the intercession of Amos and kind of uh, allows those first two judgments not to happen. Uh, One of them was for grasshoppers to come. One of them was for fire to fall. And then he has uh, the third vision. The third vision is probably what what the book of Amos is most noted for. If you've ever heard anybody preach on the book of Amos, more than likely you've heard them preach on the third vision, uh, which is the vision of the plumb line and how uh, Israel has been held to the plumb line, the standard of God, and had been found wanting. They had not uh, measured up. It's during this message that there's a brief pause taken in the book, and a, a historical narrative is given, just a brief one, and it tells about Ahaziah, the priest that was there at Bethel. Uh, I'm sorry, Amaziah, not Ahaziah, Amaziah, uh, who was the priest at Bethel, and uh, how he came and kind of um, objected to Amos, really kind of read him the riot act, and we find that in that third message, and that's when that takes place. The fourth vision uh, was of a basket of rotten fruit, and the indication that uh, Israel was past being ripe for God's judgment, that they had already extended beyond the longevity that God, uh, the long suffering that God was extending to them, and that by the time judgment came, uh, Israel could not plead the fact that God had just not given them a chance. They were not only had the chance, but they were more than had the chance. And this vision of the rotten fruit. Uh, was an indication to Israel that you are beyond being uh, having mercy extended to you. And then the fifth vision is finally God saying, judgment at this point is unavoidable. It is coming. There is no, no further thing that Amos can do. There's no further thing that anyone can do at this point. Judgment is coming. So these were the five visions. The last section of the book were five promises. And isn't it amazing that even in God's chastening, He still has promises to restore. These are His people. In fact, the statement is made to these folks in in one of the the, the justifications that God gives to Israel. Not that God has to justify Himself. But one of the justifications He does give to Israel about His judgment is, He said, I've been true to you and you alone. I've been faithful to you and you alone. I've not gone and departed from you. I've chosen you as my nation, as my, my people. He said, I have been faithful to you, and you have not. You've gone over here, and you've been faithful to all these other things. He said, I've been faithful. And uh, so he he speaks of this in chapter 9, in verses 11 to 15. He speaks about his faithfulness to the nation of Israel, and he gives gives five different promises. All of them revolve around three different themes. One of them is the reinstatement of the Davidic line um, on the throne. So that there would be a king from the line of David on the throne again. Now, again, this is speaking now of end-time events when the Lord Jesus Christ will once again sit on the throne of David and be the king over his people. He also gives the promise of renewing the land, and he also gives the promise to restore the people. What a gracious God he is. Uh, If we ever stop to think how gracious he is, his grace is limitless, isn't it? His forgiveness is limitless. When he taught his disciples how to forgive, you remember when they asked him? <clears throat> and Peter was very proud of himself, wasn't he? He said, should I forgive seven times? I mean, the custom was to forgive three, and that was it. Peter thought, man, I'm going to sound spiritual here. He said, Lord, should I forgive seven times? And what did Christ tell him? Seventy times seven. 
He wasn't saying at 491 you don't forgive anymore. What he was trying to get across to Peter is you never cease to forgive. Never cease to forgive. You say, but that guy does it all the time. He keeps doing it, he keeps doing it, he keeps doing it. How often should I forgive him? Every time. You say, well, that's not fair. <laughs> Take it up with God. How often does He forgive us? Every day. Now, I understand we were forgiven once and for all for all of our sins at Calvary, but that included every sin we commit every single day. He's faithful, isn't He? What an amazing thought. And there's a pattern there of our forgiveness. We need to learn to be forgiving of folks. You say, well, they are abusing me. You don't understand. They just keep doing this over and over and over again. We still forgive them. Let me ask you this question. What about if they don't ask for our forgiveness? There's two teachings that Christ deals with in the New Testament. One is, if we do something wrong and we know we've done something wrong, we should go and ask forgiveness. And then he teaches on forgiveness, if you were the one that was the one that was offended. He does not make a requisite for our forgiveness to be them asking for it. He simply says we're to forgive. You say, but that person never asked me forgiveness. Well, you got to forgive them. If we're going to live the way that Christ has taught us in forgiveness in the New Testament, we're to forgive. Whether they've asked for it or whether they haven't asked for it, we're to forgive. And uh, so wonderful, wonderful picture here given in the book of Amos. Uh, of course, Amos is the author. He's only known to this book. We already mentioned that. Uh, he was very well educated in the Scriptures that they had at the time. Uh, the Law of Moses and some others that had already been written prior to this. Um, he was also very extensively educated in the ways of the wilderness. Uh, he was an outdoorsman. Uh, you can see as you read some of this book, you'll see kind of some of that shining through in his, in his messages as he teaches and preaches to Israel. And then he had a very, very keen sense uh, of morality and justice. He was a man of very, very high character. <clears throat> and um, he was serving <coughs> during the time of King Uzziah. If you remember, uh, Isaiah in chapter 6 said uh, in the year that King Uzziah died. So he served slightly before uh, Isaiah. Uh, he also served slightly before Hosea and Micah, um, if you want to know kind of the time setting. So those three prophets would have been just shortly after Amos. Uh, Obadiah, Joel, and Jonah served just almost a little bit before him. And he kind of overlapped a little bit of the first three and a little bit of the ones that were coming after him. But he served kind of in a, um, a space of time between a group of prophets and kind of bridged that gap, if you will, uh, for the northern kingdom. Uh, it was around 755 B.C., if you were to take that, that number and bridge his, uh, kind of use that as a center mark for his ministry, uh, some years before that, some years after that. Uh, there is reference to uh, the earthquake that took place <coughs> that uh, they can mark down pretty precisely to a date uh, that Zechariah also refers to in his, in his uh, prophecy. Uh, in chapter four, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 5, he references the same earthquake that is mentioned in the book of Amos. So again, it kind of pinpoints the time period uh, where Amos is serving. And so it kind of helps us narrow that down. The Christ of Amos is, is really found in the overall book, kind of like um, uh, Esther was. If you'll remember when we got to Esther, uh, there was just the picture of Christ overall throughout uh, the story of it. 
<clears throat> and we find that here too, from chapter 1 through chapter 9, we find that there's a view of Christ um, that He has the authority to judge. And we see that uh, pictured very clearly. And then the very last uh, four or five verses of the book uh, indicate that He will also restore His people. So as we take the, uh, the, the right that He has to judge and the fact that He's going to, and then we take the fact that He's going to restore His people, you can see that as uh, a picture of Christ in His millennial kingdom and the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom. So you kind of take the whole book, if you will, as a picture of Christ. There are no specific verses that speak to that. But uh, the book itself points to Him very clearly. The key theme is the judgment of Israel. We've already stated that. There are two key verses, or two, two key passages. Let's take a look at those. Chapter 3 and verse number 1. Chapter 3 and verse number 1. <clears throat> These would be the key verses of the book. Um, this one and, and one other passage here. Verses 1 and 2 says, hear, the, hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. In other words, he's saying, I've only known you, and I have the right to judge you. Uh, then in chapter 8 and verse number 11, Chapter 8, verse number 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro, and seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. You know, famines are terrible things. They really are. In fact, in the next service, we're going to be dealing with the fourth beatitude that talks about our appetites and hungering and thirsting. It's interesting that he speaks here of the judgment being a famine, but not a famine of food. If you think how horrible it is to not be able to find the food that you need for your physical nourishment, could you imagine having a famine of God's Word? Not being able to find what you need to sustain you spiritually. He speaks about this. Chapter number 9 is our key chapter, uh, as he talks not only about the judgment that he's bringing on Israel, but also the fact that he's going to bring restoration to them once again uh, in the end days. And so, uh, a wonderful book, uh, fairly short. It's only about nine chapters. It's not very difficult to read. Uh, if you know kind of the setting and what is happening, why it's happening, uh, it makes the prophecies and the, and the messages, the sermons that are preached, uh, kind of make better sense to us. Uh, we understand why God is doing what He's doing. And we also understand that God has absolute right to do that. Sometimes people read these Old Testament books where God brings judgment, and they say, well, He's an unfair God. No, He's, he's been more than fair. He's been more than gracious. He's been more than long-suffering. And we need to understand that. And by the way, that's the same argument men hold to today when they don't trust Christ as their Savior, isn't it? They'll say, well, I don't think a loving God would send anyone to hell. And they, they throw it back on God as, you're going to be merciful because that's who you are. Well, God is merciful, but He is also just. And uh, we need to understand that truth. God makes a way. He gives ample time. He gives ample opportunity. He extends the privilege to be restored back to Him without judgment. 
And when men reject it, it's not God's fault. It's man's fault. I was listening to a fellow just this week, and uh, the question had been asked to him, why do bad things happen to good people in this world? And the blame often gets pointed to God. Why does God allow it? If God is such a gracious God, why does He allow these things to to happen (coughs) to good people? Is God the cause of those evil things? No. Man has been the cause of those evil things, hasn't he? Our sinful natures. The sinfulness of man has brought about the evilness in this world. We don't blame God. God created man perfect, didn't he? There would not have been bad things happening to good people had man not chosen willingly to go astray from God. So it's not on God. It's on man. We're the ones at fault. And God is the one that is gracious enough to come to us and say, I'm going to make a way for you to be restored back to me once again. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to buy you back. He didn't have to, but out of his love for us, he's going to. And what a joy that is. Let's uh, go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer, and then we'll be ready for our next service here in just a little bit. Father, we're thankful for your word, and as we uh, study its pages, Lord, what a joy it is to our hearts. As we have even taken a few moments to just kind of get a view of Amos and the message that you've given to him for Israel. Lord, may we take the application, knowing your heart, and even though these verses are written, these messages are written specifically,